Love that hat, Aaron. <laughs> Hats are back in. Did you know that? You don't care. Uh, it's it's great to be be here today. I was um, last week. I was down in Chicago at this uh, on Tuesday. It was a hundred and five Fahrenheit. I don't know what that translates into. I can't do the translation anymore. But it was hot and muggy on Wheaton College campus, and I was speaking there, and uh, I wished I was here. At least it was air-conditioned. So, um, doing a lot of thinking. This is the first uh, week that we don't have any, we're very few students here. I always need to remind people that there are students over on the Bayview campus, uh, 54 B.Ed. students who have just started, but this is the first week where we don't have summer school during the day, I don't think. Am I right? Thanks. Um, it's the first time that we, we don't have summer school, but it's also um, uh, kind of one of those times that we all kind of feel a bit of a lull, uh, and some people are off on vacation and things like that, and, and wondered what would be good to talk to about in this day. I see our New Testament, prof- our Old Testament professor, our New Testament professors here, which is good to see you. Uh, because I was taking a chance that there'd be no professors here today, and I could do a Greek word study. <laughs> the, Greek, the Greek students uh, were, were studying for their, their final uh, last night, which was really kind of fun, because the way I learned Greek at Fuller was, uh, in called the method was called the inductive method. And, and you kind of were immersed into Greek right away, and you, you had to translate right from the first day. And someone said it was like a like having a little beach shovel and being caught in an avalanche and the kind of you get hit and then you dig your way out and then they'd hit you with verbs and you'd kind of and you'd dig your way out again and uh, but it was all done on the first few chapters of acts so we all memorized the first few chapters of acts so i went through last night as they were studying and i started quoting praxis apostolon tomon proton logon and they all were going don't do that. That's going to mess up my mind. I'm trying to study for this final. Two stories. Uh, and if you could put Psalm 118 up there, I'll refer to it. When I was studying in seminary, one of the, the, the great biblical theologians at that time, uh, he was an elderly man by the time I got there, but his name was George Ladd. Uh, he wrote the book, A Theology of the New Testament, The Presence of the Future. So many of his books are still used. But he was a broken man. He was actually quite a sad figure. And in my first week of orientation, he disillusioned me, if you can be disillusioned. He made a comment that I've never forgotten. And it was a sad comment from someone who was so immersed in the New Testament. It was tragic. He said this, I've always felt a strange distance from God. He's never been close. He's always been far off in my experience. Isn't that tragic? Compare that with another friend of mine from seminary who was driving home with his son from church one Sunday And all of a sudden, his young son asked him the question, Dad, is God watching us? 
My friend said, why do you ask? Oh, he says, I just wondered. No, no, why are you asking? I want to know why you're asking me this. Why are you wondering if God is watching you? What's going on? The kid said with some kind of fear, well, in Sunday school today, our teacher said that I was to remember that God was watching me because I was misbehaving. My friend in the car almost slammed on the brakes, he told me, and turned around and went back and was going to just kind of ream out the, the Sunday school teacher. He was so mad. He was ready to phone her when he got home, but by the time he got home, uh, he had kind of calmed down. He thought to himself, God gets so much bad press. I mean, this idea that God is watching us like a hidden closed-circuit television camera with all sorts of banks and stores and you just kind of and he's catching everything you do I mean have you ever seen those cameras in some of those buildings and wondered what people are watching we've even got one right here that's right <laughs> my friends my friend really lost it but that's the way we see God in, sometimes in those kinds of terms a faraway person somehow ready to cuff us along the side of our head if we step out of line. He thought about all that, he told me. And then he thought about something better. He said, you know, your teacher's right. God is watching you. But do you know why? The kid says, no, why? Because he loves you so much, he said can't take his eyes off of you. That's why. That's the kind of God that the psalmist is affirming in this scripture. It's an affirmation of a God who loves us so much that he can't take his eyes off of us. Like, we're about to enter the next phase of our academic year. The summer school students are gone, but in September joining the new cohort of B.Ed. students and the demon students and all of those things is this time where all of the students are usually on the campus at one time, at least one time during the fall. It's a time where we as a Christian university and a seminary, we hope that this time is great for them academically. But we long for it to be something that is special for them when it comes to faith and their journey as well. That somehow, one of the tasks as we challenge them to think critically is also to lead them toward an awareness of how much God really loves them. Of the kind of lengths that God will go to bring us back into relationship with Him. So I want you all to think this morning, just for a moment, about God's intentional love and desire to bring us closer. There's an interesting word in the New Testament. It keeps cropping up in the story of Jesus. And I think it helps us understand that. It's, and I don't know if this is the way you're supposed to pronounce it, because I've forgotten. Macron, translated from a distance. It's, you see it in the New Testament all the time, this idea of being from a distance. Luke says when Jesus was crucified, the women 
who were interestingly named in the passage, stood at a distance watching things. Macron, at a distance. Luke says that when Jesus was crucified, he did that. And Jesus is led away into the darkness in Luke 22, 54, being led away to die. And we're told that Peter, the chief of the disciples, the rock, followed at a distance. Macron. Describing Peter cowering in the darkness, in the shadows, in his fears, watching at least within range to see, but still at a distance, somehow far off. In the New Testament, this idea of being at a distance seems profound with meaning. We follow, but at a distance. We long to be close to God, but our experience of God is Macron, just at arm's length, at a distance. Sometimes that space between God and us is about fear. Sometimes it's about ignorance. Sometimes it's about apathy and the lack of passion. Sometimes it's intellectual, where we sold out to the God of reason. We don't want to be accused of seeming to be emotional or unreasonable. But whatever it is, we all know what it feels like to be at a distance. Intimacy with God might make people think, I'm too much of a fanatic, too pious. So I follow just at a distance. Close enough to see, but never close enough to embrace God and Jesus Christ with any passion. Sometimes we feel an unworthiness. I catch that a lot around here. And I worry about it. I call it a worm theology. We don't feel that God even desires us to be close to him. We're sinners. We miss the mark when we face this unrestrained goodness of God. But interestingly enough, in the New Testament, there's another use of the word macron. It describes not the gap between us, but actually the distance that is bridged. The distance bridged by a God determined to have us close to him because he loves us so much that he can't take his eyes off of us. In the story of the prodigal son, Jesus says that the father was waiting for the son and when he was far from him, Macron, at a distance, he came running and he embraced him. He didn't wait for some kind of penitence, for confession or contrition, but the prodigal father runs out, bridging the gap between his son and him. And embracing him. In Peter's sermon in Acts 2, Peter tells the crowd in his sermon, This promise is to you and to your children, all who are at a distance. Isn't that interesting? Do you get it? Like, if you don't understand Macron at a distance, then you will be, it'll be hard for you to understand the thankful burst of praise 
that the psalmist writes in Psalm 118. Open the gates of righteousness. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. The Lord has done this and it's marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. The Lord is God and He has made His light to shine on us. You are my God, he says two times in verse 28. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His love endures forever. If you don't understand this idea of being at a distance, then how will you understand the immense feelings being expressed in this psalm, illustrating the great lengths that God goes, that God goes to because he loves us. It will be difficult to see how Jesus stretching out his arms on the cross is actually an ultimately a costly but intimate embrace for all of us who are at a distance. He comes to us because we could not come to him. He reaches out across the distance, the great gap of all the things that brought this existence of distance, fear, Apathy, intellectual pride, hurt, brokenness, sin. Name it what you will. He reaches out determined to bring us close. I was at this conference for Korean young adults last week speaking. It was an amazing time on the Wheaton campus just to see the life amongst this generation it was actually interesting. Esther came running into my office before I flew out and said, do you realize that you were on the poster right next to one of the Wonder Girls? I didn't know who... The, does, who knows who the Wonder Girls are? Very good. They're big in Korea, right? <laughs> like I'm told. So I was supposed to get a picture of me with her. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to do that, and I feel like I failed Esther. I'm sorry. But we, I spoke, as did a number of other people that were speaking there. And then we were in a panel discussion. And they asked me my story of conversion. How did I come to know Christ? I've done a lot of thinking about that. I grew up in church, like some of you. Church was my experience. I knew the belief systems. I had all the things to draw from that were wonderful, but all of my growing up, including going into university, was really Macron, always at a distance, always just kind of at arm's length. God was always at this distance. Sociologists tell us that we, we kind of live in that kind of world now. We're kind of an onlooker conscious world where we look in a kind of virtual reality where we don't move beyond the distance. We kind of observe, cool, dispassionate, uninvolved. It's why we like Survivor. We're just slightly back from it all. We've made that act like tourists, just passing through, never settling down and never taking our arms. And that was what faith was like for me. It was always at a distance. And then one day, God just spoke into my life. A very marvelous, 
I was hanging out at the time. I was dating a very attractive Catholic charismatic who talked me into going to this meeting. And um, God spoke to me at a distance. Knowing Jesus requires a change in this macron. Uh, it's another way of knowing. We can only know Jesus and follow him we, when that distance somehow is bridged, when somehow we move into that relationship. And I shared that with these young adults. But it's a risk. It's so much easier to live at arm's length and at a distance. It's so much safer, isn't it, to somehow keep it just. And for each of us, distance is measured in different ways. It's so much easier. That's why we need a God who will bridge the gap. I've told you the story a number of times I know of my systematic theologian professor, Jeffrey Bromley, who who woke me up one day in a sleepy lecture and reminded me that God was a seeking God. This very proper Englishman wakes me up and tells me one of the most important truths about the gospel. That God is a seeking God. He yelled at me and he said, Mr. Nelson, if you remember nothing, which is very likely... since you've slept through most of my classes. He said, if you remember nothing, remember this. God is a seeking God. From Genesis to Revelation is the story of a God who will not let you go, in my language, a God who will not allow the distance, who will go to any lengths to bridge the distance. I often tell my class on gospel, church, and culture, I say, what's the first question that God asked in the garden? Do you know what it is? Where are you? <laughs> not, you know, not like some of us would have. What have you done? But where are you? From Genesis to Revelation, is a God who will not live in Macron with us, who will do anything to bridge the gap. Would that every student that ever comes out of this school would know God in that way, would know Jesus in that way. I remember the days I took down the arms in my own faith. I shared with those people last week. I remember the day that the distance was bridged. Yes, it required a decision on my part. But it was a pursuit by God that made it possible. A God who would not let me go. No wonder the psalmist is so happy. Because that's been his experience. Let's pray. To you, O God, whose first question 
to us in our brokenness is where are you? To you, O oh God, we give our lives. Amen. Go and be blessed.